In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about legacy, breast cancer as legacy, storytelling as legacy. Whether it is a gift received or a gift given, something passed knowingly or subconsciously, a legacy is a noun simply defined as a thing handed down by a predecessor. But oh my goodness, is that an understatement? I first truly felt the weight of legacy when my dad was dying. Two and a half years after my breast cancer diagnosis, my dad had pancreatic cancer. From the time of his diagnosis to the day that he passed away, I got 100 days with him. 100 days to receive chemo, to make funeral arrangements, to take last trips, 100 days to tie up loose ends, to say our I love yous, and for my dad to share with me all the stories. I grew up on 50 acres of land in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California. My father's stories were tied to the land, to the apple and Christmas trees he grew lovingly, to the forest that ringed around the home. As he died, we walked the land, and he shared with me the history of his coming to fall in love with this corner of the world. I could see in him how important it was that I absorb these stories, that I understand my past, and that I share these stories with my brothers and with my own daughter. His stories were his legacy, and still are, eight years later now, that the land belongs to someone else. The land is in me, just as my father's stories are in my blood. He also taught me the power of storytelling as legacy, how important it is for the teller and the recipient. My guest today understands this deeply as well. My guest is Lisa Laudico. When she was diagnosed in the summer of 2017, Lisa became the fourth generation in her family to be diagnosed with breast cancer, but the only one to be diagnosed at stage four de novo, meaning a stage four diagnosis right off the bat. Her breast cancer is a mix of lobular and ductal, and she also carries the CHECK2 gene mutation. Since her diagnosis, Lisa has worked to use her skills assisting others living with metastatic breast cancer. Case in point, at the height of the pandemic in the summer of 2020, Lisa created the Our NBC Life podcast. Lisa joins us today from Connecticut, where she lives with her husband of 26 years and their dog, Kita. Welcome to The Burn, Lisa. Thank you, April. It's so nice to be here. I'm so honored to have you here. You are reading a piece that you wrote called The Legacy from our 2020 family issue. After Mm -hmm. you read, we will chat a bit. And for those of you listening at home, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by our chat with Lisa today. All right, Lisa, I'll let you take it away. Thank you. All right. The Legacy. 
Nana was sitting in her favorite chair, reading, sneaking in a page before paying attention to the noise. We streamed through the back porch into the kitchen past the half-eaten cherry pie with a sticky knife on top. There was the fridge covered with school pictures, some prayer cards, and an old Swift Coal Company magnet. The kitchen window looking out to the shared driveway had curtains with a lovely weight to them. This was a solid house with corners giving clues of a family that once had money. Nana laughed at our arrival, put down her book, and gave us hugs before calling out directions. My sisters got the room with the Jenny Lynn beds and mum's dolls. Aunt Julie's old room would be mine. I was 12, and clearly Nana could see I could handle that responsibility. The cousins arrived, and the girls ran outside to meet them. This was my chance, to be with Nana alone, drinking my juice as she cradled her tea. I wanted to know about the cancer. I was five when she went into the hospital to remove a mole on her right breast and awoke to no breast at all. Dr. Livingstone was an eccentric small-town doctor who wished he were a surgeon elsewhere. He told my stunned Nana that he guessed she had six months to live, so why not go on a trip? She did all that and then just kept on living. Dr. Livingstone wrote about her case in one of his medical journals. That day, in the sunny kitchen, as my sisters screamed in the backyard, Nana showed me the top of her scars. I felt flush with shock and knowledge. That revelation was just the beginning of my weaving, bobbing, and ducking around breast cancer. In two years, my Nana's sister would develop progression with mets to her bones, and she would die quickly. She would be the fourth family member to have had breast cancer on my maternal side, and we were beginning to see this as a trend. My 14-year-old ears were quick to pick up the whispered anguish. I knew she should have gone to Toronto for that second opinion, or damn, I'm furious she didn't have the same surgery as me. They clearly missed it. I sat at the same kitchen table with those blue-checked linoleum-covered seats and held my Nana's hand. Her bright white hair that had turned with the chemo was quaffed for the funeral, and her eyes glistened as she worked to keep the tears to a slow trickle. She would outlive every one of her friends and siblings. She would outlive Dr. Livingstone. She would become the matriarch that all her son-in-laws adored and feared, still visiting long after their marriages to her daughters dissolved. She had survived much life beyond the breast cancer, and her withering assessments of the world were addictive nuggets to these men. Perhaps they sought to capture her essence, that strength, for their own selves, along with the chuckles that resulted from her sharp wit. She would always believe that everyone could survive breast cancer if they could only get the right surgery. It would be 21 years before the breast cancer legacy returned to our family. So many Christmases and Easter dinners, three-hour treks to Nana's home for weekends, my graduation from high school, then college, my marriage, then graduate school, then the arrival of her first great-grandchildren. Nana knew she was fortunate, never forgot her beloved sister. 
As the oldest of my generation, I soaked up her sharp tongue and became the bossiest know-it-all with my sisters and cousins. I was the kid who always hovered by the adults to scoop any tidbits of family gossip or lore. I certainly perked up whenever the big C was discussed and filed this fragmented and somewhat stale information under manageable risk. When Nana died at the age of 94 of congestive heart failure, she knew that the next generation, my mother, had found a lump around the same age as she had. She knew my mom had a lumpectomy in spite of her warnings of what happened to her sister, but conceded that the science had evolved since that time. She knew that my mom would have another lump in her other breast and go through the same treatment. Again, all this breast cancer knowledge became just another issue to manage, to get through, to live beyond just as Nana had done. Nana wouldn't live to see all of her daughters get early stage breast cancer, postmenopausal, just like her. She wouldn't know that her granddaughter, the bossy one, who was always so curious about the scars, would break another family barrier and get stage four breast cancer premenopausal without the early warning system of an early stage like everyone else in the family. That granddaughter, me, would be diagnosed with de novo stage 4 metastatic breast cancer in spite of the early mammograms and ultrasounds at 35 and the many trips back to the radiologist and OBGYN for multiple screenings just six months before the devastating news. Nana would never know that all the living women with breast cancer in my family, my mother, my aunts, myself, would all have the rare genetic marker of check two variant of unsubstantiated significance. But she sits with me as I am strapped in my infusion chair without any scars to show on the outside since all the surgeons feel surgery would do nothing to extend my life. She holds my hand and waits for hours with me in the waiting rooms and shuffles around my heart as I move from one scan to another. She is with me always as I boss around my mother and aunts and sisters and cousins telling them to get their MRIs and to demand this treatment or that drug. I rail loudly and demand they listen to the knowledge that we all should have known and that now we cannot unsee. Nana holds my hand and gives me her strength. Mm, Lisa, thank you so much for that beautiful story. So let's um, take a quick break here and hear from a fellow survivor who wrote her story for the first time recently and found the experience transformational. It was such a healing experience writing this piece, going to my younger years and realizing the life moments that took me all the way here has been so important. Realizing every experience is needed to be able to succeed in the future. And also, it just helps answer the big whys in my younger years. It was an honor for me to write the story. My name is Natalie Bello Silva, founder and creator of Scars for Healing. We offer pre-tie headscarves that are great for women facing hair loss due to medical conditions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you for the love. All right, Lisa, welcome back. Thank you awesome. again for your powerful writing and reading today. Oh, thank you. It's so wonderful to have you here. I want to dig right into your story. 
So you began this story with the day that you saw your grandmother's scar. And then we see how breast cancer was traditionally in your family, something to manage and get through. That was kind of the legacy set by your grandmother. But then we see your story of metastatic breast cancer come to play. And Mm. you said, I am my grandmother's legacy. So I wonder if you could break it down, what it means to you these days, today, which I realize is a few years after you wrote this story, but can you Mm. break down what it means to you to be your grandmother's legacy? Mm. Well, I hope that I'm her legacy. That's certainly aspirational because I do love, um, to bring the family together. Uh, We're recording this during the holiday season, the winter holiday season. And it's one of my great joys in life to have my whole family together under one roof. And my Nana was like that too. I also feel it's aspirational because, you know, she was just such a rock star. She was so, she was truly very funny. She was really sharp witted and, just beloved by everyone, respected. And she was so smart. And for me, she was kind and she was smart and she was, she, she was no fool. And she was clearly in, in a, she was a a cardiac nurse, um, uh, in, 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 in a cardiac surgery nurse actually before she was married. And she gave it up, I think when her first son was born and she always loved, the the OR and she was really um, the surgeon that she worked with really respected her. You know, the woman was never without a book. I mean, the, she was, you know, in the 1950s with five kids and, um, you know, a husband that had his own business and, and she... What were her outlets, right? I mean, her. I, I think about that. Um, so she's just really intelligent person and, and so... I hope that she's proud of what I've done with my life. And I hope that she, she looks at what I've done with the breast cancer diagnosis. Right. Um, and I've been able, I've, I, I hope she feels that I've been able to be as strong as she's, she was, she was a really strong person. <laughs> so oh, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think it says a lot about your Nana that she showed you her scar that day. Mm. And I love how you wrote about being flush with the secret and this knowledge. Mm. Um, I also love that you brought to life for us in your story, this character of Dr. Livingstone and that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the fact that you're, you even know as the granddaughter, the name of your grandmother's doctor, I think speaks very highly to her passing that knowledge Mm. on. And yeah, I mean, also, hello, you go to have a mole removed and wake up without a breast. That is a very could interesting you, thing. <laughs> could you even imagine? And and the reason and the other wild part about it, it's like the ethics of it, the medical ethics of it are just all sorts of wrong. He was a family friend. Her, his wife was her best friend. Like what? What is that about? We would laugh about it, how bonkers and how bad it was. Anyway, that's part of the family legend, too. It's like Dr. Livingstone. He was brilliant, but clearly off on so many levels. I mean, so when she he said, get your, you know, get your life in order. She went on a trip 
a trip of a lifetime. She went and toured Europe with her best friend. Guess who, guess whose wife she was? That, that's, that was his wife. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. Anyway, yes. And then but he did write her up in a, he did write her the, the case study. He wrote the right. case study. He was very proud of it. <laughs> he was very proud of it. I'm surprised he lo- he still had his medical license. But anyway, that's fine. Yeah. Well, that could have gone a couple different ways. But <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. So your grandmother's legacy then stretches into this medical journal. You know, it's all the lives that our stories yeah. touch. It's so true. Yeah. And so... I want to talk to you too about, you know, writing as legacy and you, mm. um, you know, you've been in some of the wildfire workshops, you've mm-hmm. published a couple of different stories, I think maybe three now in wildfire. So you, you're actively writing your life stories and the stories mm. of your experiences. So mm. I wonder, Lisa, can you tell us what writing means to you in terms of legacy, but also as a tool for palliative care and that healing component? Mm, Such a great question. I've talked about writing as a form of mental health often. Um, It certainly has been that for me. I've always liked writing. I've I've enjoyed it. I I wouldn't say that I'm a writer prior to... um, Prior to my diagnosis um, and prior to joining Wildfire, I did, uh, I think I did tell you this before that I dabbled in memoir writing and took a few workshops and they just weren't hitting the mark for me, but they, they gave me enough knowledge of, of what sort of I liked and what I didn't like in a, in that sort of a seminar thing. And then when I found the Wildfire writing workshops right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was it, it it was like a light went off in my head. And for me, uh, I feel like it's helps to clarify what I'm, what I'm emoting at the moment. It helps to clarify what I've perhaps felt in the past. And for me, it then allows me to look and problem solve the future a little bit better. And for me, I love the, I love the task of, of crafting the sentence and, 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 and getting, and, and somehow the words giving emotion on the page. So for me, it's, it's, it's also a puzzle. Um, so it's intellectual and, and all of that. But, it, but the most important thing is that it, it makes me feel it makes me feel good and it makes me feel like I'm here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is your writing, like what percentage of the writing that you do, would you say you intend to have read by others or is a lot of it for yourself? I'm in the process of deciding that now. Um, my health has changed, um, you know, and so I feel like I'm getting to that place of decision making on what's going to, what am I going to delete and what am I, you know what I mean? You know, in terms of looking at my laptop and what am I going to clear out and what, what is there? What do I parse out for each of my children and for my husband, for my sisters, for my mother? Um, so I'm, I'm determining that I have started to share some of my writing that I started writing in the workshops that never, um, 
never haven't been published yet, uh, but I have shared it with some of my family members. And I did share a story about my uncle, a beloved uncle, who is such an interesting man, so complex. I mean, an entire novel could be written about this man. He was just such a treasure and but also so like all of us, so flawed and, and complicated and had some really hard things happen in his life. But he also um, sometimes was his own worst enemy. And But I loved him fiercely. And um, I shared what I wrote about him with his daughter. And I was afraid. I love my cousin so much. And I was afraid, but I, I did it. And I was a little, I was afraid until she told me it was okay. Cause I, I mean, I was being really honest. <laughs> I wasn't, I was unvarnished, you know what I mean? You know, I was being honest about it, but I hope that the love for him came through. So it yeah. seemed like it did. It worked, I guess. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. I wanted to ask like what you were afraid of and you were afraid mm. that she would be um, kind of hurt by your interpretation of him. Well, no, not not the interpretation, because she and I have had many conversations about, you know, our family, our family legacy. And um, so she's just one of my beloved cousins. And my fear was that she shared information with me that I would have never have had access to just because, you know, I wasn't his daughter. I'm only his niece. And so I, I, I got information that I shared in this piece. So it's like I wanted, I wouldn't have sent it anywhere else except to her and to say, was, is it okay? The mm -hmm. way I, I put it in there because I, but it, it helped so much in giving the full picture of who he was as a man. Yes. Well, you're bringing up a lot of different aspects, right? When we are writing our mm. memoirs, when we're writing our family stories. Yeah. Um, and the stories that be, you know, extend beyond our own recollection. And they're, like you said, right. bringing into uh, the picture other pieces. Right. But there's that, um, there's just such a satisfying, I can't describe it in any other way, except for like this subconscious click that kind of happens when you write mm. these stories and it, and you're, like you said, you're finding meaning, you're understanding past experiences, and then also kind of shaping how you take it into the future. So yes. Yeah. I just really want to commend you for continuing to write and work through that. And also as you're now looking through to say, okay, so which, what of these things is okay for yeah. For extending beyond me in my life. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and one of the things, um, you know, I've had a, a few things that I've done in my life. And one of the things, uh, more recently is I've, I'm a therapist. I'm, I'm a, a clinical therapist. And I think there's, it's always about balance. So if some of my pieces are really just for me to workshop how I'm making meaning of my own, of whatever I'm going through, right? My sadness, my anger, whatever it is, that's, that's just, that's really not necessary for me to share with other people. It, there's no benefit to it. It's not like it's, it's not a literary benefit, my process. But if I go through that process and then write a more literary piece, if you want to call it that, though I'm not suggesting I'm literary, I'm just saying that you go from that internal dialogue and interpretation, and then you can get a little bit more 30,000 feet maybe, 
and then dig into the emotions and then it's different and then it's worth sharing. I think it's, it's, it's that subtle difference sometimes. And that's what I have to evaluate with my writing, which, where does this piece fall one side or another? Right. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's a great writer, Marion Roach Smith, who wrote a book Mm -hmm. called The Memoir Project. And I love her guidance on this particular topic, which is that writing about your life, um, and she puts it a little crassly, I think she says, like, your sniveling about your life has to somehow elevate my life for it to be (laughs) worth sharing. You know, (laughs) reading it has to somehow transform you know, some aspect of my life, or Mm. it is just that it's just an anecdote, or it's just, you know, a process like you're describing, you know, of of making meaning. Mm. But yeah, I think once you bring in and, and I talk about this a lot in my workshops, too, like once you bring in that aspect of like, I thought this, and then I realized this, that's where suddenly it lifts off the page, and it can change someone else's life. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I, I actually... I don't mind that, that, um, soundbite or whatever. I, I think that's, it's exactly right. Yeah. That we need to be able to share some of our learning. On the flip side, some of that knowledge, right? I've always known that. Like, I'm not going to share something that's not going to be worthwhile to read if it's just for my own internal processing. Um, but it sort of tripped me up in my first couple of years living with metastatic breast cancer is, is that I, I was doing well. I felt well. Um, and I would laugh with friends and they're going, well, are you writing about it? And are mm-hmm. you like, what are you doing? Like, you know, are you going to start a blog, Lisa? You're a good writer, Lisa, you know, whatever I, I can write professionally or whatever I was doing, but I would say, no, what am I going to say? I mean, literally what am I going to say? I got up this morning, I had avocado toast. I mean, what do I say? It's like the Instagram situation where I'm just not, that's just not me for me. And, and it was a, it was a dismissing of what I was really feeling. So my pain, given that I took a pill in the morning and my progression didn't happen for a full two years. Um, you know, I didn't look like a cancer patient. I had the same sort of amount of energy. I was able to really kind of live as normally as one would, one would hope, except for the existential piece where you have cancer in your body and it's not going to be cured and you're going to die soon. But that's just like this weird thing out in the ether because I look the same. I feel the same. It's, it's a, it's like living with this existential weirdness every single day. But what am I going to write about? Well, I could certainly write about the existential weirdness of living with that every day, but I dismissed it. Right. I dismissed it. Not valuable enough because I'm not having surgery. I'm not in chemo right now. I'm not like l- literally with my bones breaking from bone mats. I mean, I have so many friends who their first few years of their diagnosis was a living hell. Like without, <laughs> there's no way you can put lipstick on that pig. It was just right. horrible stories. And I'm just sitting over here going, oh, well, you know, went out for lunch and I'm still working. And I mean, you know, again, I could have talked about what it was doing with my marriage. I could have talked about how it was really impacting my younger son so negatively. And, and when I started to write about those really important things, the, 
the train wreck <laughs> that's left behind a diagnosis like metastatic breast cancer. Um, yeah, I could have written about all of those things. And, and I did once I got over myself. Right, right. Well, it's so, um, it's interesting that somehow, somewhere along the way, we get this idea that the stories worth telling are the hardest stories, the most shocking stories, the most whatever, like it's got to be 10 or it's not worth even talking about. But mm -hmm. I find personally that the the even more small shift of thinking, the even more small shift of understanding, those are the things that make even the most 10 story, you know, someone climbing Everest say, if he doesn't like tell me about like how he learned to understand something about himself, then I can't apply that to my own life because I'm probably not going to be climbing Everest. And you, you know, could still have people who are like, how is she living with the shadow, you know, the glare of her illness, even if they don't have metastatic breast cancer, they've mm -hmm. got their own shadows, their own things that haunt them. And your learning to live in that shadow could help someone else. Yeah, ex ex exactly. And I actually, I think you said it so beautifully, and I don't mean to just reiterate it, but it feels like there, that's the magic of humanity is in these small spaces, um, in the smallness of life experience, because it's all these little tiny bits of life that build a life, but y you can just blow through those tiny bits if you're not really looking. Yeah. And so the act of writing about it, you know, the joy I've had in writing about the effect of a branch laden with snow, slowly like duffing off those little bits of snowflakes. And I'm looking out that window and I'm able to write that image down and capture that feeling is just magic. And it, 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 in when those moments are placed in the larger sort of narrative of, you know, in that particular story, I remember it so distinctly talking about how I felt about my husband at that moment and about my mother in that moment and about my life in that moment. I can remember it so distinctly in February of 2021. It was, you know, I can remember it. And that's, that's the magic of writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's getting out of your body a little bit. Exactly. It's putting you into the position of a narrator and observer. Exactly. And then slowing it way down. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lisa, before we run out of time together, I would like to turn to the work you are doing, you know, in capturing stories, amplifying mm. stories, sharing stories. Will you tell us a little bit about where you are now? The these days mm. with the Our NBC Life podcast. Mm, thank you. Thank you, April. So we're, we're thrilled. We've just finished our third season. Uh, we've, you know, I, I have to calculate in my head. We had, um, it's about it's 75 episodes in season one, two, and three. We have over 180 guests that we've met, that we've interviewed, and many of those guests are in group interviews where we will do a panel or we 
we speak to a, an oncologist who's an expert in one area, and then we actually talk to individuals living with that subtype, say, or have um, experienced uh, that treatment, for example, or we just, uh, we also do um, stories about what it's like to parent with metastatic breast cancer, what's it like to um, be a man living with breast cancer. Uh, we really try to capture and provide a, a, a forum for people who are living with this disease and they're, the community is as diverse as our world. So it's, it's, it's just been such a privilege uh, to be able to pull this thing together and to listen to all these amazing stories and people who on, on both sides of the clinic, the clinic, the clinical chair, you know, so we talk to the clinicians. Yes. The researchers. Yes. But really we our emphasis has always been on what does it mean for us, the people living with the disease. And so that has just been um, just one of my life's great joys in, in being able to pull this together and to actually have individuals living with MBC get over being nervous and be hosts and be producers and learn what it's all about and tell their story. And that has been um, such a gift. So we're heading into season four um, in March of 2022. Uh, we are uh, focusing and continuing to co focus on our series, which is called Road to a Cure, which is really, as you would expect, it's as we're going through various different types of treatments and new research, uh, we talk to the people actually doing it and we ask them, you know, what are you thinking and why are you focusing on this and not, and not these other five things that we think should be focused on? Uh, so it's an, it's a real great chance for us to have a seat at the table with the people making decisions. Um, we also are going to do grief and loss and end of life planning. Um, something I feel so strongly about, we, really stigmatize death so often in our society. So I feel like we need to really do a deep dive and really provide great resources for people. Uh, and we're also going to have some fun talking about parenting again, because it's a sub subject that I think is evergreen. We could do a, an episode on parenting every single season, but we're also going to do one about pregnancy. Um, I love, uh, there's a lot of stories or more stories with people, you know, successfully being able to, um, to have children even after a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. And I think that's, these are important stories to tell. And, uh, you know, it's so much more, you know, we just, uh, we, we just have no shortage of, of, topics for us to cover. And so we also are, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be um, having a whole ally campaign. Um, we have people who are early stage uh, breast cancer, um, uh, people who've had early stage breast cancer have joined the podcast. And that's really important to me too, because their viewpoint matters to me. And it's helpful for us um, to have that dialogue back and forth. So uh, we're thrilled that we're still doing it. And it's still fun. And people are still having fun on the team. So that's good. That was a big criteria for me. You had to have fun. <laughs> that's fabulous. I love that. And I love the aspect that it's for, it's by and for people with metastatic breast cancer. I just, the, mm. the full circle of that and approachable and listenable and enjoyable by everyone. 
It's really great, Lisa. Thank you for creating that legacy. Well, thank you. So where can people find more about you and our NBC life? Please find us at our our website, which is, you know, rnbclife.org. Um, we're supported by Share Cancer Support, so you can find us there too. But we have our own standalone website, which allows you to go into the back catalog of all those episodes I was just mentioning. Um, and there's, I, I, I didn't even mention all the different categories and types of podcast um, topics that we've covered, but you can find it all there and our guests and our episode notes and so on. We are on every podcast platform. I think the, like the most places where you can find podcasts were there. And you just, you know, search up our NBC life. We're on all the social platforms. So, you know, hit us up. We'd love to talk to, to talk to you about your story. Um, we're always there and we always are looking for new ideas and new people to join the podcast team. So it's a very big umbrella, big tent, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's, it's really there for everybody is what we want it to be. Excellent, Lisa. Thank you so much. So my guest today, my writer and guest was Lisa Laudico. Her piece that she read today was called The Legacy from our 2020 family issue of Wildfire Magazine. Thanks again, Lisa, for reading and chatting with me today. Well, thanks for having me, April. It's been so fun. Thank you. So I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay till the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat with Lisa. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our more than 30 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story, and don't forget to subscribe to The Burn. Finally, here is your writing prompt. So I want you to set your timer for eight minutes and write without stopping or editing. As you know, there's magic in keeping your hand moving that full time. The prompt is the scars you don't see. The scars you don't see. Whether your body has been marked by a surgeon, scalpel, or not, there are a lot of breast cancer scars we carry invisibly under the surface. For many of us, the longest, deepest, roughest scars are the invisible ones. The ones that stretch through families, the ones that mark us and we carry deeply inside. So I want you to write today about those scars. The scars you don't see are eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.